Okay, well, let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Lord, we give you thanks for this day, for the opportunity to be able to meet together and discuss your word and your person. We just ask that you be with us as we go through this conversation, and we just ask that you enlighten our minds to understand truth and to see beauty and to appreciate goodness wherever we can find it. My Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell, and lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so tonight we're talking about uh, Jesus and his feelings to a certain extent. Uh, We're going to be talking about the emotional life of the Lord. This one's going to be pretty systematic, sort of, wherein there's 10 passages we're going to go through, and these are passages that I think give us an interesting glimpse at who Jesus was, so to speak. Uh, Because we oftentimes are aware of Christ, and we talk about Christ a lot, but one of the things that you'll sometimes hear, especially from people outside of Christianity, oddly enough, is an observation that with the universality that we want to apply Christian ideas with, we oftentimes turn Christ into this sort of vague, sort of catch-all human being, this sort of analogous to anything or one-size-fits-all human being kind of thing. And there's definitely a good reason for that. Obviously, he is the single savior of the whole world. Obviously, he is the logos, the incarnation, the one by which all of humanity encounters God. But that doesn't mean that we should even accidentally allow Christ to become this sort of nebulous character in our minds because he was a historical person. Um, He, for instance, is not this sort of vague, um, androgynous human being. He had a gender, and he wasn't just this sort of er-human or this sort of like all races in one person kind of human. No, he came from a distinct ethnic group. That's actually like a huge part of the Bible and, and weirdly a huge part of the gospel as well, if you know where to look, that Jesus was a Jewish person. Like a lot of people, at least these days, are rightly sort of critical of the idea that like Jesus had, you know, the sort of brown hair and blue eyes as at least in European art, he oftentimes was depicted with. Uh, But you find something similar in African art. Jesus often looks African. In Asian art, Jesus often looks Asian. And there's a reason for that, right? It's sort of a, again, a reflection of this idea that he is the Christ, the one and only mediator between God and humanity. But He had a distinct race, right? Now, the reason I bring these things up, the idea that he has a gender, that he has a race, um, is to try to help us see that he isn't this stained glass window figure, but he is a distinct person with a distinct personality. I do not have the expertise to psychoanalyze Christ, um, and even if I did, it's unclear based on, one, how much evidence we actually have of him, and also the whole thing where he's divine and human in the same person probably makes psychoanalyzing Christ a a weird thing to attempt in general. But um, while we're not going to be able to determine his Myers-Briggs personality type or his um, temperament or anything like that, that's not what we're going to be doing tonight. We do have a sense that he is a personal guy um, and that he does have motivations and he has characteristics and he has traits and he has these sort of consistent characterizations, if you will, throughout the scriptures. So these 10 little passages, not super little, but kind of little, passages we're going to be going through are going to be trying to help us get a feel, not necessarily a a psychoanalytical picture, but a feel for who 
Jesus was just as a human being. Feelings are a uniquely human thing. Um, they're something that are part of humanity because we're physical. So humans and animals have feelings, whereas, as we've talked about before, angels, maybe not so much. Um, emotions are kind of meant to draw us on a very visceral, physical level to what's good and lead us away from what's evil. Uh, for instance, many of our base emotions are things like hunger and loneliness and stuff like that, which are intended to f f convince us to seek out things like food and good company and what have you. So it must have been strange going from being divine to then being divine and also human and experiencing emotions, but I think that is something that God the Son wanted to do in, in as much as the divine essence can want something in the same way that we can. Um, it's something that he willed. He willed to enter into our humanity. He willed to enter into all things but sin because it's kind of paradoxical to suggest that Jesus can sin. Um, and I think we sometimes overlook Jesus being an emotional person. Um, I don't know if he was overly emotional, like more emotional than the average person, or if he was less emotional than the average person. I just find that we oftentimes think of him as being a less emotional than average person. Like the idea that Jesus could laugh is sometimes kind of odd to us. Um, and that's, I guess I can see where that comes from. Um, because the Gospels oftentimes are prioritizing the information they convey to us. They only have so much room on the scroll to write things down. And so they usually are trying to give us a feel for Jesus's message and the events of his life and the things that he taught and all that stuff. And so it's sometimes not the most colorful when it talks about exactly what Jesus was experiencing, also in part because it wasn't written by Jesus. It was written by his apostles quite a bit later. So those times where the Gospels do share Jesus felt this emotion or Jesus, you know, had this experience in his heart, um, I think are, are sort of precious then because there are kind of, there is a bit of a scarcity of them. So we're going to try to tackle some of these. Some of them are going to be a little more obvious. Um, for instance, when it says that Jesus wept in the Gospel of John, those are a little more obvious, but we're also going to try to tackle some that are maybe a little less obvious and some that you kind of have to, or at least I had to, sit with for a while and sort of reflect on in a prayerful context to really even stop to take the time to consider that, oh, this was a, an emotional experience for our Lord. So the first one is going to be from, particularly in the Gospel of John, it's from John chapter 4, um, where we're talking about Jesus traveling through Samaria, stopping in the Samaritan town, um, and he meets somebody at a well just outside the town. You might have heard this story before. Most of us who are listening to this probably have. But it mentions that the Lord had had some conversations with the Pharisees. And when the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, um, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. For those of you who aren't familiar, Judea is sort of the southern portion of the Holy Land, and, Ju and Galilee is in sort of the northern portion of Holy Land. And the quickest way is through the middle, but most of the middle of the Holy Land was uh, some, a place called Samaria. It's named after a certain town, and that's where the Samaritans lived. The Samaritans were related to the Jews. Um, they were, at least in part, descended from some of the northern Israelites um, from before the exile who had intermarried with some of the Gentile nations and things like that. And because of that, the Jews and the Samaritans were 
sort of both religious and ethnic rivals almost in the same way that here in the u.s a lot of times like the state that your state hates the most is usually the one that's like right next to you um that's that's kind of the relationship between the jews and the samaritans although they have religious disagreements as well but at any rate it says that he left judea departed again to galilee so he had to pass through samaria he came to a city of samaria called sikar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, from way back in the Old Testament. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Uh, so first of all, Jesus gets tired, um, which is, I would consider an emotion. Maybe some people wouldn't, but I would consider an emotion. Um, a lot of times we hear Jesus went here and did that, and then he traveled over here, and then he traveled over there, and then he went to this other place. Um, he's on the go, but we get an interesting insight here that Jesus, while he was a very experienced traveler, did at some point get just exhausted. Like, consider that his disciples are actually going to go into the town to get food, and Jesus genuinely is, like, taking a seat by the well. He's like, y'all go ahead and, and bring me back something. That is how tired he is. Um, so there came to him a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. So not only is he tired, but presumably he also is thirsty. That's something that I'm, I imagine he would have like a genuine desire for. Now, he says he, he thirsts later on, but I'm going to skip over a good bit of this. But he has this conversation with this woman, and it's one of those really fun scenes of Jesus kind of changing a person's life through this one conversation. Um, and they talk about this woman's background, and they talk about the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans and things like that. And it's really cool. Jesus mentions... Um, he uses like the well that they're next to as an analogy for holiness that, you know, in the true covenant, the new covenant, that there'll be this sort of spiritual well within the soul that'll lead to eternal life and all that kind of stuff. But I want to skip ahead to verse 27 when Jesus's disciples return. It says that just then his disciples came and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but none said, what do you wish? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the city and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples begged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Literally, you, you sent us ahead. You said you were taking a break because you were weary from the journey. You're getting some water. We got the food. That was the deal. Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him food? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you do not labor. Others have labored, and you have ent entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Okay, so it goes on to say that the Samaritans come to Jesus, and he talks with them, and he stays with them for two days, mind you. And this is, this is an interesting one, too, because the Samaritans and the Jews usually did not, like, sit down to a meal together. So it's, it's unique that Jesus is willing to, like, perhaps alter his plans to stay with these people. More on that later. I want to focus on this idea that he speaks of this food that he has, right? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and all that kind of stuff. And they're like, okay, but I want you to visualize the scene to maybe get 
at what Jesus is seeing here. Because he's sitting at the well. This woman who has had this incredible conversation with him is going back to town to like get all her neighbors and say, oh my gosh, this guy might be it. This might be the Messiah. And Jesus is probably saying to his disciples, you know, I have food of which you don't know. It's to do my father's will. As maybe she's going into the city or maybe as she and who knows how many others are coming back out to the city. Jesus may even have them in eye shot when he's saying like, my food, the thing that keeps me going is, is this. Like he, he even almost says like, look and see, like the fields are ripe for harvest. You know what I mean? Um, there's a really cool thing going on here, I think, where it doesn't necessarily say Jesus experiences a certain emotion, but I think it really shows like the sheer passion this guy has for what he does. You know what I mean? Um, this passage was a big one for me, like maybe a year or so ago. Um, because I think as a young man, there's definitely this weird urge almost to want to find something that you can like dedicate your entire self to something that you can kind of go all out on. You know what I mean? Something that you can go all in on something that you can pour out yourself and some cause or some person or some, something, right. That you would be like, this is it. This is what I would give my life for. Right. And I think it's cool to note that Jesus here, also being kind of a young man, he's like maybe 30, 31, something like that at this time. Um, that that for him, like that's it. Like doing his father's will and especially in his ministry of bringing the message of salvation to everybody and then being the means of that salvation. That's what like that's genuinely like what he lives for. So much so that even though he is tired and hungry and thirsty, when the opportunity arises, to do more of that, he, he jumps on it. You can probably imagine yourselves there's, you know, times where, yeah, you might be hungry or tired or thirsty or whatever, but, like, when something you really care about comes along, you kind of forget about it. And I almost wonder if that's what Jesus is experiencing here, that, like, he has that moment of, like, dude, I am so heckin' tired. I'm just going to stay here and get some water from the well. You guys go get the food. But, like, by the time the disciples actually return with that food, he is already, like, he's on, he's in it, you know what I mean? And he even says to them, like, I'll eat later because I'm, I'm doing this right now. Yeah, yeah, there's something that's already kind of, like, drawing that strength um, into him for, which I think is kind of cool. Um, but anyways, we're going to move on to the next one, maybe in the interest of time more than anything. I don't want to ramble too long because I, I tend to do that. We're to me in Mark chapter 2, verse 23, which for me is at the end of this page. Okay, so this is early on in Jesus' ministry as well. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees um, because that is a huge theme throughout the Gospels, um, which I think a lot of times we hear of these instances, but I don't know that we often get like the full picture of it. Like it's rare that people treat that as like a theme of the Gospels, but it kind of is a theme of the Gospels. Anyways, let's read what he says. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God when Abiathar was the high priest and ate of the showbread, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Okay, so the reason we read this bit first is for a little bit of context. 
one of the main disagreements between Jesus and the Pharisees was this idea of following the law in the way that was appropriate. For the Pharisees, they were super strict about the letter of the law. In this case, Jesus and his disciples are passing by some some wheat or some grain or whatever, and his disciples are just kind of like plucking it and popping it into their mouth as like a little afternoon snack as they're traveling. And for the Pharisees, they see this and they see a violation of the Sabbath. Why? Well, on the Sabbath, it's a day of rest. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. In the Pharisees' mind, picking grain as you're just kind of walking by, which, mind you, would not actually take that much effort, for them is like harvesting. Like that, that is like definitely like that's work. Like you're doing your day job on the Sabbath at that point. And therefore they say, Jesus, what gives? Why are your disciples doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus um, draws on the Old Testament and, and even just the logic of the situation to be like, guys, chill. <laughs> like the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so that's, that's sort of the context. Let's look at chapter three here. Again, he entered the synagogue. And a man was there who had a withered hand, and they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him, because apparently miraculous healing also counts as work. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save the life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out, and his hand was restored, and the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Um, this one is also a weird one, because people oftentimes, I think, think of Jesus versus the Pharisees as this very, like, it's a very um, theologically technical discussion, which oftentimes it is. Um, people imagine them as, as debates, which they often are, but I think what mark gives us here is this weird insight that this was like there were like feelings involved in this because for the pharisees it's not just the theological nitpickiness although that's certainly a big part of it for them there's also elements of jealousy of jesus's popularity um, but especially because of the theological disagreements they see jesus as a threat not only to their leadership but also to like the jewish destiny because remember the pharisees think that they have to uphold the law really strictly and like every member of the community has to be really truly morally perfect according to the law of Moses or else they'll never never get the sort of national and spiritual restoration that was promised by the prophets so they see Jesus as an obstacle to that so to them it's not just like a it's not just a matter of theological correctness for them it is kind of personal it is about like the destiny of their people and for Jesus it also is kind of personal, and it is also kind of about the, the destiny of their people. And it's interesting that Mark here tells us that Jesus is, like, genuinely frustrated with them, um, and that his heart is grieved because of them, uh, and because of the hardness of their hearts. I wonder if part of it is Jesus pitying the Pharisees. I don't know, especially because they're so, like, kind of caught and trapped in this um, kind of self-affirming cycle of, like, perfection, perfection, and not even like correctly understood moral perfection. Um, and then especially pitying the people that are looking to them for leadership because like the Pharisees are leaders amongst the Jews. And so like experiencing firsthand how like obnoxious the Pharisees could be. And then also like bearing the knowledge that like 
all of the other Jewish people were probably kind of under the yoke of the Pharisees, so to speak, I'm sure was like crushing for Jesus. I had like a weird moment again. This one was um, maybe like two years ago, I want to say. Um, and I was a new teacher and I was um, still very much thinking about kind of the big picture and all of that, which I, I still do. Don't get me wrong. But I had a moment a number of years back where I was wrestling for days, like deeply emotionally wrestling with just the knowledge that I'm going to do so much to try to teach these students the, the truth and lead them on the right path. But just statistically speaking, chances are some of them aren't going to make it. Like, I mean, like big picture, like some of my students will probably go to hell. And that's just like, was such a weird thing to like, just think about and grapple with. Um, and luckily there were, uh, there were some good people and some more experienced teachers that I was able to speak with to kind of sort of make peace with that and everything. Um, but that's a huge part of why I think that in these moments, Jesus is maybe also experiencing something like that. Like he, he sees the wolves in sheep's clothing. He sees how the flock is being led astray. Like he sees how there are so many obstacles in between the people he is trying to save and them actually being saved. You know what I mean? And especially when like the obstacle to the people's salvation, the obstacle to the people's true understanding of God and God's will for them is like another person that he can look in the eyes and another person that is like, giving him crap for his disciples like picking grain on the wrong day of the week you know what i mean like yeah i can imagine that was frustrating at least <laughs> you know what i mean now again jesus is supremely virtuous so i'm sure there's no like unrighteous anger or anything like that but at least to the extent that he would be able to experience feelings that he doesn't like willfully choose yeah i'm sure his blood boiled at times talking to the pharisees and let's look at mark chapter 8 for another one it's gonna be in chapter 8 verse 11 this one i shared in a group chat um, a while back because it was the gospel for the day and i thought it was hilarious so the pharisees came and began to argue with jesus seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him if you're this great prophet you know prove it basically and he sighed he sighed <laughs> deeply in his spirit according to my translation, and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. <laughs> this one cracks me up. Uh, it doesn't say that Jesus is mad here. So it might be like, a, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. But like, so disappointed that he, that like the apostles hear him sigh, and not only do they hear him sigh, they say, he sighed deeply in his spirit. What a sigh that must have been. You know what I mean? And not even that, that he just like sighs really deeply. He literally like says like a single little quip and then like gets in the boat and leaves. Like doesn't drag out the conversation. Yeah, like doesn't drag out the conversation. Doesn't have like anything else to say. Doesn't wait to hear their response. He just says like, why does this generation see you sign? No sign. And then just like, and then it's just like, all right, I'm going to head out. Like, I don't know if this is actually what he's experiencing, but it just, it feels like he is just so done with the Pharisees. Like for, for today, he's like, I have, I've had enough of this. Like gives that big, just, ugh. 
and then just leaves. Literally, like, just walks away, uh, which is great. Very mature. Yeah. 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 No, there's. Oh no! Don't get me wrong. There's a ton of signs that Jesus does. Um, really, all of his miracles are considered to be messianic signs. Um, and there are even passages where it explicitly, like, says that. Like, there's one time when John the Baptist sends some disciples to talk to Jesus, basically to like verify that he is the Messiah. Right. Um, there's theories as to why John did this, but the long and short of it is that they run up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, John the Baptist is asking, are you the one we've been looking for? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus says, tell John this, the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, you know, the poor have good news proclaimed to them, which seems kind of random, right? But if you know your Old Testament, you might know that there are prophecies from the Old Testament that said like in the day of the Messiah, the blind will see, the lame will, will leap, you know what I mean? The prisoners will have liberty proclaimed to them, and, and things like that, right? And John the Baptist obviously knew his Old Testament. Jesus knew his Old Testament. So they're like, Jesus, are you the Messiah? And he's like, why don't you tell John this? The blind see, the deaf hear, you know, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there definitely are signs, but um, other versions of this exchange, I don't know if they're supposed to be different gospels versions of the same scene or if this just probably came up more than once i don't remember um but jesus says no sign will be given except the sign of jonah and he even he even explains it a little bit and he says like as jonah was in the whale for three days or the great fish for three days so too will the son of man be in the earth for three days or, or something like that um so i mean there's plenty of signs um let's look at mark chapter six sorry we're going a little out of order but but I just wanted to, to do those passages on the Pharisees together for uh, the sake of conceptual um, ease, I guess. So we're going to talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the sea, um, which a lot of people don't know are like on the same day. Like those, like the walking on the sea happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. And I understand why we oftentimes encounter those stories separately because there's just so much in each of them. But I think it's really cool to read them together. Um, so we're gonna try to like just get at what's going on here, and then we'll, and then we'll we'll, we'll see how this reveals things about Jesus's emotional life. At least, things that I I think we can learn from about Jesus's emotional life. Okay, so verse thirty starts after Jesus has actually sent the apostles out. Um, so this is when he like selects the twelve, twelve with a capital T, and he appoints them apostles. He vests authority to heal the sick. Uh, to cast out demons, and he sends them out two by two, and he says, okay, go preach the kingdom of God, right? Whatever house is willing to receive you, stay there until you leave, all that good stuff. So verse 30 picks up when the apostles return. Um, so it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, which I can only imagine is a really cool scene, by the way, because these are like 12 of his closest friends, and he's given them authority and sent them out. I don't remember how long they're gone, but apparently they all meet back together and i can only imagine like it's a really cool reunion all like the gang's back together again and they're all telling stories about performing exorcisms and miracles and proclaim the kingdom of god and all this cool stuff and i just cannot help but think that that's just like such a cool moment right when everybody's like getting back together and just so excited to reminisce and all that um and then i think even i don't think it's in the gospel of mark but there is one version of this story that i brought up I think it was like two weeks ago when Jesus says, oh yeah, I saw Satan falling like lightning from the, from the sky or whatever. 
and like just because like he sends out the apostles and like stuff happens but anyways i'm getting ahead of myself so the apostles returned to jesus told him all that they had done and taught and he said to them come away by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while because as we've seen jesus knows the importance of rest and he understands that like he loves what he does but it seems like he's he's aware that yeah it can take a lot out of you being on the go and and all that kind of stuff come away in by yourselves to a lonely place and rest a while for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat because this is, they're in a popular place and they're popular people and they went away in the boat to a lonely place by themselves now many saw them going and knew them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them as he landed he saw a great throng, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. I want to pause there for a second. Um, so one, we've already seen that Jesus is deeply concerned with the fate of his people. <laughs> so it's interesting that even though, again, that they are on their way just to like take a breather for a little bit, that Jesus sees this crowd, and he has compassion for them, that he almost pities them just because he he knows that he is the answer like he knows that he is the one that they need and so even though i'm sure he's excited to hang out with his guys for a little bit or at the very least he's trying to make sure that they have time to just chill for a bit after being on the go for a while even then like he sees this great crowd that's like gathered ahead of them like they literally like go across the sea and all the crowds have like gone around the sea on land and literally beaten them to where they were going on the other side anyways jesus sees this and like again apparently is willing to just like change his plans apparently is willing to just like teach and hang out with the people and because again like he he knows of their spiritual deprivation. Like he's had these frustrations with the Pharisees. He knows what, like the dire circumstances that the people of God are in. And apparently it seems like he can't resist being the answer to humanity's problems. So when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, Jesus, this is a lonely place or a deserted place in some translations. And the hour is now late. Send them away and go into the country and villages round about and buy themselves something to eat. Jesus, it's dinner time. These people are going to have like potentially a like multi-hour walk home depending on where they came from. I don't know how long it takes to get from one town to another, but it would have been long enough to be inconvenient if they didn't leave like right now. Anyways, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Which is like, uh, denarius is like a, day, a typical day's wage. Anyways, two denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat. And he said to them, well, how many loaves have you? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down by companies upon the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed it and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And of those who ate the loaves were about 5,000 men. Okay. So there's so much that can be unpacked from the, the feeding of the 5,000, especially in like the typology of the Eucharist and all that kind of stuff. But we're going to try to focus on Jesus' feelings here. 
So not only has Jesus like altered his plans so that he can be with this big crowd of people, which apparently he was not originally planning to spend the night with, right? Even then, he spends this time talking with them and teaching them and preaching and stuff like that, that even when the 12, who, mind you, just got back from a trip and are very tired, are like, Jesus, can we please send the people away? It's, it's getting late. Jesus miraculously enables the crowds to stay with him a little longer. Like, not only are they, like, is he willing to say, oh, look, there's a whole bunch of people there and apparently feels compassion because they're like sheep without a shepherd and is willing to spend time with them then when he wasn't planning to, even then, like, apparently he's having a good enough time with them that he goes out of his way, draws upon his abilities as the creator of the universe in order to enable them to also share a meal together. Um, again, there's a lot of Eucharistic stuff going on here, but on a human level, on a, an immediate human level, I should say, it's interesting to note that he apparently is willing to like go really far, miraculously far out of his way just to, again, just to have that quality time, I guess. At any rate, verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowds. So not only does he miraculously provide for the crowds to be able to stay a little longer so they don't have to go home and get food the normal way, he also even is willing to send the, the apostles, who again are very tired having just returned from their journey, while he stays behind and like, again, just spends just a little bit longer with the people. I don't know if he's just like really likes, you know, waving them off and saying, okay, great, you know, see you tomorrow probably, which he does, more on that later. But he says, okay, apostles, you guys go ahead. I will catch up with you later. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were distressed in rowing, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. This line always gets me. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw... Him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, have no fear. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Okay, real quick. I think, like, Jesus is honestly going so far out of his way to make the feeding of the 5,000 happen that not only is he like, okay, I'm going to change my plans to be with these people, and then miraculously provide dinner for everybody so we can all hang out together, and then send my apostles away early so we can all hang out together while I dismiss them. But even then, he's like sending his disciples ahead and is literally like, I'll catch up with you later, and is again apparently willing to perform a miracle so that he could stay back with the crowds instead of going in the boat with the apostles. Now, maybe part of it's also that he wanted a little alone time to pray, which it certainly sounds like... Um, but I think it's hilarious because he really genuinely is just intending to like meet them on the other side. It even says like he intended to pass them by. Like the walking on the water on it on Jesus's human level, at least, apparently was not even so he could like meet up with the apostles. It was literally just so he could like make up for the time he lost while dismissing the crowds, which I think is hilarious. Um, yeah, geez. But again, but even then we also see Jesus again willing to changed his plans for the people he cares about, right? The, the apostles are in the boat. They see him walking on water and they are terrified and they cry out. And Jesus, I guess, hears them shouting and like looks over and he's like, 
y'all chill, it's just me, and then just goes over and gets into the boat with them. Again, apparently not what he was planning, but that's what he did. Um, yeah, I just think I just think it's interesting to see just how far Jesus is willing to go to accomplish his mission. I mean, obviously it's going to lead him to the cross, and, and there's no greater love than to lay down one's life. But like, there's all these little moments throughout the gospel that I feel like we oftentimes skip over or, or we miss. Um, for the feeding of the 5,000, the walk in the water, it makes sense just because there's like such like chunky theological foreshadowing going on. But it's like, it's cool to spend a little bit of time thinking about like, what would Jesus have been thinking? You know what I mean? What would he have been feeling at this point? Um, which I think is fun. This, this dude is literally doing two miracles to like enable this evening with the people. Anyways, um, we're going to skip ahead to pretty late in Jesus's ministry for now. Um, we'll, we'll return to kind of this, this um, point in Jesus's life in a little bit. Uh, but we're going to be going to the Gospel of Luke chapter 9. And we're going to talk about Jesus and Jerusalem, interestingly. So Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. And it is, it's hard to communicate just how important Jerusalem was. Because not only is it the capital city, the seat of the monarchy in Israel and all that kind of stuff, it's also the holy city. It's where, as we've mentioned before, where the temple is, where the Ark of the Covenant used to be, where in the Jewish mind, where like God himself dwelt in the universe. Um, it was also one of the biggest cities in the Holy Land, if not the biggest, which means it was also kind of a cultural center, I'm sure an economic power. So like Jerusalem for the Jewish people would have been like if you rolled New York and Washington, D.C. and San Francisco into a single city and the Vatican while we're at it. And in fact, maybe even more than the Vatican, because this was the temple, not just a big famous church, but the one and only temple with a capital T. Jerusalem was huge. Anyways, so Jesus goes to Jerusalem usually a few times a year um, for various holidays and, and festivals and things like that. But this is one of his, I think this actually might be his last like major trip to Jerusalem, because I think it's on this trip that the Paschal Mystery takes place. Anyways, so... In the Gospel of Luke, there's actually quite a bit that happens on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. I don't remember off the top of my head where he starts, but chapter 9, verse 51 says that when the days drew near for him to be received up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Um, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and, and all that kind of stuff, and they, they kind of prepared a travel itinerary and all that kind of stuff. But I want to just focus on this idea that he resolutely determines to go to Jerusalem. Um, because mind you, this is Jerusalem where he knows he's going to die. And in, that verse even begins by saying, like, when the time for him to be taken up was drawing near, like, Jesus knows that, like, okay, like, the grand finale is approaching. And so he knows what he has to do. And so he, in some translations, it says that he um, sets his face kind of like flint, um, which I think is a, a reference, or maybe I'm mixing it up with an Old Testament passage in Isaiah. But anyways, Jesus knows what is going to happen when he goes to Jerusalem. He knows he is going to get into a lot more debates with the Pharisees. He knows he is going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified, ultimately. He knows he's going to be betrayed. And yet, he resolutely determines to go. Like, he knows he's going to die there. And yet, he's like, all right, guys, pack your things. We're going to Jerusalem. This one is like a big moment in my mind because it's a big moment in my uh, semester when I'm teaching seventh grade, because prior to this, 
is when Jesus starts predicting the passion explicitly to his apostles. Um, in fact, it's like less than 10 verses uh, before this one. I think it's in, yeah, it's in verse 43. While they're all marveling at the things he did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears for the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying and it was concealed from them. They should not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Um, and that's only like the second time Jesus predicts the passion. So Jesus is like starting to say, look, guys, at the end of all of this, we're going to go to Jerusalem and some man's going to be handed over and he's going to be killed and betrayed and tortured and all this kind of stuff. Right. And then like not 10 verses later is like, OK, guys. Time to go. <laughs> and like I mentioned, for for the Gospel of Luke, this is like a whole season this is like, a, like if this were a TV series, it would be like a whole season of just them like setting out for Jerusalem at the beginning of the season and then like arriving in Jerusalem at the end of the season. But yeah, perhaps um, we'll see what they do with that. Yeah. But there's something to say about just like the, the determination, the resolution, the courage of Christ, just in the fact that he does have some foreknowledge of all that's going to go down and then just I love that St. Luke says he resolutely determines. You know what I mean? Like he he like decides, he chooses, like, okay, we're doing this. You know what I mean? I, I just think it's cool. I just think it's cool. Um we're gonna jump ahead to when he he actually gets there. <laughs> but in or actually no. One more thing before then. Let's look at chapter twelve, verse thirty-five. So along the way, he has conversations, he performs miracles, he gives teachings, all this good stuff. Uh, there's just like a few interesting little lines that he says kind of along the way that I think are fascinating. Um, in Luke chapter 12, 35 to 40-something, uh, Jesus gives a few parables on the necessity for like watchfulness. These are some of the parables that are like when he says, you know, a servant whose master goes away, you know, spends all his time like partying, and then his master shows up in the middle of the night and is like, heck do you think you're doing and all that kind of stuff you know what i mean so it's it's kind of about the the second coming of christ and the need to be vigilant and the need to be you know always prepared for for all that good stuff but in verse 49 i think is where we get an interesting insight on just what's going on in jesus's heart he says i came to cast fire upon the earth and would that it were already kindled i have a baptism to be baptized with and how i am constrained until it is accomplished. Again, this is Jesus on the way to Jerusalem where he knows what's going to happen and he's trying to kind of hint at what's going to happen to his disciples. And along the way, he's just talking about like almost how excited he is for it. I don't know if, I don't know if excited is the proper term, um, but he realizes all that he's doing. He realizes like what he means for the world, what he means for the universe, what he means for humanity. He realizes the weight of his actions. And he says like, and he admits that he is come to do something incredible like i have come to cast fire upon the earth in some translations it's translated as i have come to set the earth on fire and how i wish it were already so you know what i mean like how i wish that fire were already kindled um and he says i have a baptism with which to be baptized again in reference to what he's going to experience during the paschal mystery in jerusalem and he says and how i am constrained until it is accomplished like it like it almost dominates his thoughts, it sounds like. That, like, this is such a big deal, what he's traveling to Jerusalem to do. And, like, I don't know. There's such clarity in, in his vision. There's such clarity in his plan, almost, it seems. That, like, he knows exactly what he, like, has to do. And he's like, 
and I can't think of anything else. You know what I mean? I, I don't know if that's actually what's going on in his mind, but that's just what it sounds like, right? It just sounds like he's like, this is just such a, I, I, it's hard for me to, to describe that feeling, but do you know that feeling I'm talking about? You know what I mean? Where he's just like, I am just like, this is such a big thing for me that I like can't think of anything else. Like when we were in um, undergrad and like it was like finals week, that was like genuinely all I could think about. Like I would have like my entire life planned out every step, every hour until finals were over. And literally what was on my schedule for after finals? Literally nothing. I like genuinely could not think of anything beyond like this intense time of like what I need to do here and now. And I wonder, I'm not going to suggest that that's definitely what's going on, but I wonder if that's what's going on in Jesus's mind here. That like he just, everything is in motion, right? Like he's in like the end game of his time on earth. And like he, and it's, it's difficult for him to like, again, to, just to think of anything else. But moving on to, uh, so this will be when he actually gets to Jerusalem, but we're going to look in the Gospel of Matthew for this one. Matthew chapter 23. So in Matthew chapter 23, they make it to Jerusalem. Actually, I think it's a little bit before that that they actually make it to Jerusalem. But the verse we're looking at is while they're in Jerusalem. Um, and we're going to be in verse 37, I believe. So they get to Jerusalem, and they actually are in Jerusalem for about a week. Um, and there's a lot of stuff that goes on during that week. So Jesus arrives on Palm Sunday, right? And then he's crucified on Good Friday. So there's a handful of days in between there where they are mostly in Jerusalem during the day. They're in the Garden of Evening, or excuse me, not the Garden of Evening, the Garden of Gethsemane in the evening um, where they, they just kind of chill and hang out and, and pray and stuff like that. And then they, it sounds like they mostly spend the night with some of their friends, um, Martha and Mary, who live in basically a suburb of Jerusalem. Anyways, so... While they're there, Jesus spends a lot of his daytime in the temple, and he does his usual Jesus thing of, of preaching and teaching. Now, since Jerusalem is kind of the headquarters of the Sadducees, at least, and I imagine there's a good presence of the Pharisees there as well, just because this is where the Sanhedrin's operating from, a lot of the time he's in Jerusalem, he's in these, like, public conversations with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, the Sanhedrin literally, like, send multiple agents, if you will, to test Jesus or to try to trap him in speech or, or whatever because it really is like the end game of Jesus's time on earth like they have resolutely determined to kill him Jesus is resolutely determined to offer himself as a sacrifice like the pieces are all in motion anyways so at one point Jesus has this like really big denunciation of some of the things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing like he he goes off on them. There's like an entire chapter almost. Like almost the entirety of chapter 23 is Jesus saying, woe to the scribes and Pharisees for this, and woe to the scribes and Pharisees for that, and woe to the scribes and Pharisees for this other thing. But anyways, in verse 37, um, we get an interesting line where Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken and desolate. For I tell, me, I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, especially that first line, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you, I think is, is wild. Because we, in a certain sense, kind of start to see like the incarnation on like full display because Jesus in terms of his human life um, you know 
growing in Mary's womb and being born on Christmas and all that kind of stuff, right? Obviously would have been like very much after the death of most of the prophets and all this kind of stuff. So this line about, you know, them stoning prophets and, and killing people who are sent to preach to them is like a reference to like stuff that's happened probably before Jesus arrived on earth, which is interesting. I mean, he even goes on to say, how often would I have, you know, gathered your children together like a, a chicken gathering all her chicks together, right? And it's almost as though we're seeing like the divine son, right, sort of we're seeing these like almost divine ideas playing out in human emotions. You know what I mean? Like just the fact that he's saying like, man, how, like how much I would have loved to have basically like wrapped this city up in my arms, like time and time again for like centuries past. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I don't know if, again, I don't know if that's actually what's going on, but at least it sounds like this is the, the divine Jesus feeling the things that the divinity would feel if it could you know what i mean and that's like the whole thing of the incarnation is like if god was a human this is what he would be like you know what i mean and so like if god could feel that you know long suffering desire to like just finally get everybody on the same page you know what i mean if the divinity could feel that he would and so now that Jesus is a human and he can feel that, he does. And he, and he expresses that in, like, this is one of those few times where the gospel writers, at least in the English translation, use an exclamation mark, which is not super often when Jesus says stuff. It's not uncommon by any stretch. But it's just interesting, I, I find, that there seems to be this communication of, like, a, a just a long-held feeling in, in, in our Lord there. Anyways. And especially on the heels of his long list of woes to the Pharisees, right? Um, I don't know. It seems certainly that Jesus is not only divine made man, but also that he's like a conscious reformer. You know what I mean? That he is deeply lamenting the status quo of his people. And like that's his whole reason for being here is to change things. Um, he's a visionary. You know what I mean? He's invested in these these big ideas of, you know, like the fact that he didn't even... Because, like, I'm going to start that sentence over again. It's so easy for us to focus really close in on, like, what's right in front of us. You know what I mean? And in, like, changing the world in what ways we can. And I think that's really good. But there's sometimes a risk that some people run wherein they kind of only focus on, like, you know, taking care of my own, just my family and my friends, et cetera, et cetera, that they don't think of, like, what good could be done for the community at large, what good could be done for the nation at large, and all that kind of stuff. And it seems like Jesus is not that kind of person. Like, it just seems like Jesus is the kind of guy that is, like, a big-picture thinker, you know what I mean? And a big-picture feeler, you know what I mean? That he, like, is, like, he looks out on the world, and he, like, he has, and he has thoughts about it. He has feelings about what needs to be done and how it needs to be done and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't seem like he's the kind of guy to... Just be content, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to do my, my carpentry or, you know, I'll, I'll say my stuff and, you know, and then whatever happens, happens. No, because, in part because he's God, right? This is his whole thing, um, be, being the big picture guy and all that kind of stuff. But it's just, it's cool to see that in a human being, you know what I mean? Which, again, is the whole point of the incarnation. It's cool to see that, like, this is what visionaries are like, you know what I mean? Um, and it's cool to see that he actively looks forward to, like, 
bringing humanity back together again in a very human, like a very visceral way. Not just in like the divine will, but on just like a, just an emotional level, a visceral level. Just like, man, I just really want everybody to be saved, <laughs> you know? Anyway, all right, we're gonna move on. Um, we're actually technically gonna be going back a little bit in the timeline of Jesus's life. Um, and we're going to talk about the infamous Jesus wept passage. Maybe not in, infamous, maybe isn't the right word. Um, but this is in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Um, and this one is this one's a, a big one. Because obviously there's the famous line of Jesus wept. But I think in context there's almost even more to it than that. So chapter 11 of the Gospel of John begins by saying that a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany. Bethany, by the way, is that suburb of Jerusalem I was talking about the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But Jesus, when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness is not unto death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by means of it. Because Jesus knows what he's going to be doing. Anyways. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I think that alone is just interesting that that John includes that. That's just, it's just a cool line. Just to note that these people are like f close friends. You know what I mean? Because he does, he does not say that about everybody. Like, well, okay, in a certain sense he does. John does say, you know, God's love the world and all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting that John goes, that includes a line saying that Jesus individually, personally, on a human level, like loved these three siblings. You know what I mean? Are they mentioned anywhere prior to this? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, so this is the same Martha and Mary um, who earlier, there's that story of like, Mary just kind of hangs out with Jesus in the living room while Martha's doing all the, the hostess stuff. Um, anyways, so I think that's cool. Anyways, verse six. So when he heard that he was ill, Lazarus, uh, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. So not only does he hear that Lazarus is sick, he like makes plans to go visit them, basically. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were but now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Thus he spoke, and he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awake him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we, we, we may die with him. So hold on. So in context, first of all, this is after a certain point where, like, okay, so this is before Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the final time. But the Pharisees are already out to kill him. The Pharisees have been out to kill Jesus for a long time. Anyways, so he's like, oh, well, let's go to Bethany because our friend is sick, right? Our friend is falling asleep. Let's go. And the apostles are like, Jesus, don't you remember how, like, they tried to kill us the last time we were there? And apparently Jesus is like, no, nah, we're going anyways. And, like, he says the whole thing about, like, if somebody walks in the day, they don't stumble, right? Which I can only imagine is something where Jesus is just like, don't worry, like, I got this. Um, and there's also that weird little, yeah, and there's also that weird little quip about like, no, 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 Lazarus, like, I, I just love the scene where he's like, 
our friend Lazarus is falling asleep. I go to wake him. And they're like, oh, cool. He's just, he's just sleeping and, and being sick and stuff. And Jesus is like, no, guys, like, Lazarus is dead. And to be honest, I'm glad we weren't there. You know what I mean? Like that, fascinating, fascinating. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb about four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary sat at the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, because she knows he's done some healing miracles and stuff. And even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying quietly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, uh, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her at, in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Then Mary, when she came to where Jesus was and saw him, fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. Okay, we're going to pause there for a second. We have more to say on this, but we're just going to pause just to kind of like sit with that. You know what I mean? That like, even though Jesus clearly knows what he's going to do, literally like said to the, the his disciples, like before they even like set out for Bethany, that like he's going to raise him from the dead. But even then, once he's actually there, once he's actually, you know, nearing the house, nearing the village, and both sisters come out and they say, man, Jesus, I wish you had been here because then Lazarus wouldn't have died, right? And Mary, like, collapses in tears, and, like, all of their friends and neighbors and loved ones are there also crying. Like, it's interesting to note that for John the way he narrates it, it's as though it's like when Jesus witnesses the grief of all the other people, that's when he finally like sort of breaks down, if you will. That like he he's perfectly aware of, you know, what's going to happen and what he's going to do. And he knows that like he's going to be glorified in this miracle and all that kind of stuff. But it is fascinatingly human to see that he just experiences that like, that like sympathetic sadness, you know what I mean, enough to bring him to tears. And, and the other people notice, you know what I mean? They said, see how he loved him. Um, I don't know if that means that Jesus doesn't cry often, you know what I mean? So they take it as a big deal that he cries. I don't know. I, I don't know. But we don't often hear of Jesus crying outside of this. I'll say that. Now, verse 37 takes us in an interesting direction. It says, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Um, again, Mary and Martha have said as much previously. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And that's when, you know, obviously the, the miracle of him raising Lazarus from the dead happens. But I think that 
those pairings of verses are really fascinating. So in my version of this text, um, verse 37 is like the end of one section, like one stanza, if you will, and then verse 38 is the beginning of another. But this is one of those interesting times where in the original text, those divisions aren't there. Those are kind of added um, in our English translations for the sake of uh, navigation, basically. But originally it would have read, you know, some of the Jews said, see how he loved him, but some of them said, could he who had opened the eyes of the blind not have kept him from dying? And then Jesus deeply moved again, uh, maybe deeply moved by what they said. Like, it's like, they're like, oh man, couldn't Jesus have kept him from dying? And that's when like Jesus like looks up from his tears and says, open the tomb. You know what I mean? Like, obviously like, like Jesus was intending to raise Lazarus. Like we, we see that from the preceding verses, but I think it's interesting that it's like, it's like, that's the threshold. You know what I mean? Like Jesus is sort of like, he almost like feels out when it's like a good time to like actually do the miracle, which I think is like he, he takes a moment to, to grieve with them. And then when people are, I don't know if it's exactly like this, but it almost sounds like it's like when people start questioning him, that's when Jesus is like, all right, open the tomb. You know what I mean? Obviously it's not, I'm sure it's not like a pride thing or, or a vanity thing or, or anything like that. But it's interesting. It, it just reads in a very human way, I feel like. Um, when you when you read those verses sort of continuously like they were probably intended to be read from from good old saint john um, so i think that's really interesting um, again just like getting just a weird just a weird little look at like just the idea that jesus did have like a dynamic and complex set of emotions going on in him you know what i mean which again i think we oftentimes look over uh, we again see him as this sort of stained glass figure or this you know one size fits all spiritual guru kind of thing anyways so the last few uh, that we're going to talk about are on the Eucharist, um, which, is, which is very, very fitting, I think. Uh, we're going to take a look at John chapter 6. Um, this is where there is something called the Bread of Life Discourse. So again, we're kind of jumping back in, in time a little bit, but that's because we're kind of going by category of verse rather than in chronological order. So this is a really famous one. This is the Bread of Life Discourse. Um, we're actually going to be looking more closely at like the conversation immediately after the Bread of Life Discourse. So the Bread of Life Discourse comes the next day after the feeding of the 5,000. So there's the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus almost spontaneously gives this whole thing, right? And then there's the walking in the water that night. And then the next day is when the Bread of Life Discourse happens, which again, no, not many people talk about that like these three really big scenes in the gospel all happen like in sequence but anyways so the people come back and jesus is like honestly i feel like you're just here for the free food and stuff like that and like it's kind of from there that he launches into the bread of life discourse where he talks about you know there's this eternal bread from heaven and the people are like who gives a sign like moses had the manna and all that kind of stuff and jesus is like the bread that i will give is my flesh for the life of the world you know what i mean and Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Our ancestors ate man in the desert and eventually died, but whoever eats this bread lives forever and all that kind of stuff. Bread of life discourse, amazing. We could spend so much time talking about that. But again, we're going to try to focus here. So we're going to look at uh, verse 60 and onwards. This is like after sort of the meat of the bread of life discourse, no pun intended, where it says that many of his disciples, when they heard it, said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples murmured at it, said to them, Do you take offense at this? 
Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Which will happen eventually. It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And at this, or excuse me, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Okay, etc., etc. This one I feel like is... Because there's, there's such the theological giant of the Bread of Life discourse right there that I rarely see people talk about this little exchange afterwards. I It doesn't say that Jesus experiences certain emotions, but I feel like he does. Because mind you, so he says all this, right? He sa- this is like him almost giving like a preview into one of the like biggest things that he's going to leave behind, right? One of the most intimate ways that he is going to actually like experience the communion between God and humanity, right? We literally call it Holy Communion for that reason. The Eucharist, Jesus giving his, his body, his blood, his soul, his divinity sacramentally in the alt- upon the altar so that we can actually like receive it, right? Um, it's the sign of the new covenant. It's like, it is like one of, the, one of the absolute greatest things Jesus could do because it's like the Paschal mystery made present. Like it's hard to overstate how incredible that is. And after giving this like, this preview of like this incredible thing that he already knows about, the people are like, I don't know, Jesus, that sounds kind of gross. You know what I mean? Like, what a punch in the gut that the people, like, and here's the thing, it's not even the crowds. It could be one thing if it was the crowds, but it specifically says that it's his disciples who are saying this. It's his disciples saying, Lord, that's kind of (laughs) weird. And not just that's kind of weird, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Or in some translations, who can accept it? Which is, again, man, what a... Like, these are not just like any random old people. These are like people that have actually like c- come to be Jesus's apprentices. It's not the 12, thankfully. But anyways, and he's like, why are you mad? <laughs> you know what I mean? But, it, but after that, it literally says that some of his disciples who have been with him at this point, maybe a year, maybe more, like just go home. Like, this is the breaking point for them, where they're just like, all right, Jesus, I don't know about this one. See you around, I guess. And I, like, I I can't help but think that that was a pretty emotional day. You know what I mean? To have, like, had all this, especially, like, oh, yeah. Just, it's that's It just feels like a lot to have, like, your own disciples be like, I don't know about this one, and then take off. And so when Jesus watches them walk away, and who knows how many of the crowd also have left by this point as well. And he turns to the 12, right? The 12 who, remember, just got back from their trip the day before, <laughs> right? And, he, and like, that it just, it feels like such an emotionally charged question when he says, do you also want to leave? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Man, like that, that crushes me. Like that for, like th- that line is for me, personally one of like the most like gut-wrenching verses in the gospels although like 
obviously like the passion and everything is obviously super intense as well but just like that like <laughs> of like his closest friends looking at them and like really genuinely asking them like are you still with me you know what i mean luckily good old peter right who is you know doesn't have the best track record but this is one of those times where he 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 does a good. Peter does a good in this one. You know what I mean? And he affirms like, Lord, where would we go? You know what I mean? Like after, and especially because this is, this is the 12 who just got back the first day and we're just all like telling stories about like all the crazy cool stuff they did, preaching and casting out demons and curing the sick and all that kind of stuff. Like I can't help but imagine that would have been like just super reassuring. You know what I mean? And very, just already casting out demons and curing people at this point. Yep. Cool. I know. And baptizing people, interestingly. Um, yeah. No, they've been they've been doing a lot. Like people one of the things that I think is cool about the chosen is that it like is sort of holding up the twelve, just like for the sake of people to actually like view and learn about um, and speculate about, just because like they are a huge part of the gospels. People think of like Jesus and the twelve disciples, and the twelve disciples are always kind of these like background figures. They're like pretty prominent players when you actually like read the gospels straight through. Yeah, no, they're they're great. He was like pretty much done with his ministry, and then he's like, "Now nah, you guys can have the power too." And then he like went and died. Like I didn't realize that like yeah. a significant amount of time he yep. was traveling with them, and then people witnessed like these guys were nothing, and they saw this guy, and now they have yep. actual power. Oh yeah, and there's even another time where like the the sort of outer circle of disciples, Jesus even like sends them out. Um, I don't know that he vests the same authority in them as he does with the others, but he even sends them out to like at least preach a little bit, you know, and proclaim the message. So. While obviously like it was a big deal that Jesus was the one kind of like traveling from place to place and town to town and like preaching and stuff, he wasn't doing it alone. There was, you know what I mean, like dozens of other guys kind of under his, um, under his mission, basically. Sure. Um, Yeah. It'd be interesting if (laughs) some of those secondary and tertiary people, like the disciples beyond the 12 that Mm -hmm. also get sent out, like if they did have powers imparted that it was by the apostles as a sign of right. apostolic succession yeah. right to like yeah. show like ordination yeah the or or even just the idea of like an early version of the presbyterate or like the priesthood right. with yeah. the the apostles as the bishops right. and and, and these others of the priests gone, yeah that this thing can continue yeah yeah no it'd be interesting um i don't know that we actually see the word presbyter um which literally just means elder um show up until the acts of the apostles i think is when i think you first start seeing that um but yeah but there definitely is kind of like a, there's already like a tiered system amongst um, Jesus's missionaries. But anyways, um, so that's the big one, the Bread of Life discourse. And then we'll end in uh, Luke's version of the Last Supper in verse, or excuse me, chapter 22, verse 14. So this is back or forward, depending on how you look at it. When they're in Jerusalem, it's getting to be Passover time, and so they've made some preparations in the upper room and all that good stuff. Um, and they're sitting down. Jesus washes their feet and all that kind of stuff. Um, and verse 14 is where St. Luke begins talking about the institution of the Eucharist. It says that when the hour came, he sat at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I shall not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. And then it goes on to, you know, he took the chalice and gave thanks and, and, and said, you know, drink this and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, which, is all, which is all good. And again, we talk about that for hours. But I just want to focus on this line where he, he admits, like, I have 
earnestly desired. In some translations, it says that, like, I have eagerly looked forward to or eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, which I think is super cool, right? One, um, it's his excitement for the Eucharist, I think. His excitement, you know, because he knows what he's about to do, right? He knows what this is going to be. He knows that this is going to be, you know, the consummation of, of God and man and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, which is super cool. But I also wonder how much of this is also honestly just him like excited to just like celebrate a holiday with his friends. You know what I mean? Which I think is really cool, especially because again, like layering these things on top of each other, stacking the buffs, if you will. Like like this is this is like this is a cool moment for him. Like he is approaching the grand finale of his time here on earth. Um, and it's it's this major Jewish holiday which they celebrate every year, and they've probably been celebrating together for the past like three years, and like all of this crazy stuff that he and the apostles have been through together. You know what I mean? All of the miracles, all the debates, all the talks, the bread of life discourse thing. Like, these guys are so insanely close after, you know, all of, all of these past few years. And, like, yeah, being able to say, like, okay, and, like, this is where we take it even further. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is where, in John's version of it, this is where he talks about, you know, like, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. You know, all that good stuff. Um, and the Eucharist is, is obviously the cornerstone of that. And then even just the idea of, again, on a very human level, like right after this is when the agony in the garden comes in, right? Where we see Jesus really experiencing the, the fear, the nervousness, the, the anxiety, the, the dread even of like what's about to happen. But this is a, a few hours beforehand. I just think it's cool to see that like Jesus is excited to just spend his last night with like, these people in particular you know what i mean like that's that's cool that's pretty cool um yeah just yeah just that one line of like i've earnestly desired to eat this passover with you before i suffer like if i'm gonna spend one more night with you guys before all this is gonna go down like this is the way i want to do it you know what i mean like that, that's very cool um and i think there's something to be said about that's probably also like what Jesus says to us in the Eucharist. You know what I mean? Um, obviously, like, the, the Paschal mystery is, has happened and it's made present to us in the Eucharist and all that good stuff. But there is, I think, something to be said for to whatever extent Jesus can still experience, you know, emotions in his glorified state, you know, enthroned in heaven and all that kind of stuff. I have no idea what those emotions, <laughs> what Jesus' emotions are like these days. Um, but I imagine there is, like, a genuine desire to like meet us in the mass you know what i mean and like that's also really cool to think about that 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 idea of like earnestly desiring to celebrate that together to like have his people together to to gather the chicks under his wing and all that kind of stuff like it's good times it's good times so uh, that that concludes our little run through of just some random verses that i think give us some insights into what Jesus feels um, and to kind of who he is and things like that. That We have this, this visionary, this reformer, this very sympathetic, very courageous, very um, relationship-oriented person, you know, doing all this cool stuff and, and experiencing these things, being able to really go out of his way and pour himself out in so many ways. And, and yeah, that's at least, and again, chances are, you know, some of these things are 
maybe not exactly how it went because a lot of this is just my own speculation and things like that but i just think it's an interesting way that theologians think you know what i mean that like it you kind of do have to like synthesize all your knowledge your own knowledge of your emotional experiences and knowing the context of the story reading the scriptures in context of each other you know what i mean knowing that there's the the feeding of the five thousand the the walking on the water the bread of life discourse all in the course of 36 hours you know all that kind of stuff but so that's that's all my thoughts on this or at least all the ones that we will share for tonight um so if you're listening thank you for listening i hope it was worth your while